Well, good morning. Welcome to our teaching portion of our Sunday gathering. My name is Brandon Shields. I serve as the lead pastor here at SOMA. We're so glad that you've chosen to be with us today. We are going to be continuing our series called Come Holy Spirit. And today we're going to be talking specifically about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And in thinking about being filled, I want to start by acknowledging this cultural moment that we live in that has a really kind of tortured relationship with the idea of more. So we kind of uh, live in a schizophrenic time where we vacillate between these two poles. Uh, We're kind of uh, just between these two poles of consumption and then, on the other hand, a reaction to consumptive excess with minimalism. And uh, ever since, uh, think about like consumption and con- consumptive excess. Ever since Edward Bernays, who many consider to be the father of modern advertising, released his book in the mid-20th century called Propaganda, uh, there was this shift, and it really goes way back. Like if you want to study the history of it, it goes back to Freud and psychoanalysis, but even like Nazi Germany. But if you, if you look at this book, it, it marked a shift in our culture from being what we might call a needs culture to a desire culture, a culture of desire. And there's this, there's this, this era kind of launched uh, a lot of scientific study into how we capture people's attention. And so there's, there's a whole science to disrupting and capturing people's attention. There's like neurobiology that goes into this. Um, and, and the goal here with advertising, we all know, because we all experience this on a daily basis, is to learn how to Um, I've even heard it referred to as the fracking of the American mind, like learning how to drill into, in subtle ways, through repetition, people's mental states to grab their attention, to then stir up a state of dissatisfaction with their current reality, to get them to compare themselves to a reference group, a peer group, or you think about social media, we've got the kind of the onslaught now of the social media influencers, and we begin to compare ourselves against a reference group and we don't quite have what we feel like we need. And it's not really about what I need, it's now about what I want, what I desire. And there's a whole economy behind this called the experience economy that's, that's been developed to kind of uh, monetize this. And the goal is to prompt these cycles of dissatisfaction that then lead us to uh, consume and acquire and accumulate stuff. And the goal of that is what um, advertisers call planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence is essentially like why you get an iPhone every couple of years, right? Like there's a shelf life on your desire. You get this thing and then all of a sudden it's not good enough and I got to go out and get the latest and greatest model. And um, if you want to read more about this, Ben Parr has a really interesting book called Captivology and he talks about the science behind disrupting and distracting and then converting people's desires to uh, a certain kind of loyalty to a product or a brand. And what it leads to over time is just excess, right? And we know we live in a moment where there's so much excess. There was a study done recently that the average American has something like 300,000 items in their home, which is like crazy. Um, And and what it leads to for a lot of us is just exhaustion and bitterness. Like all of this advertising, all this marketing, all of this constant being bombarded with stimulation and then that leading to acquisition just leads to exhaustion and bitterness. And like the sense that we've just got too much and yet we don't know what to do with it. The, The counter movement to consumption over the last couple of years, there's been a movement afoot 
we see the rise of what we call uh, decluttering or minimalism. And um, this is also known as conscious capitalism by some. You may be familiar with this. You've heard of Marie Kondo. Uh, Maybe you've seen documentaries on like mass consumption with videos of people walking into a Walmart and, you know, all this kind of shaming that's going on. There's the tiny house movement that's kind of a part of this. And it's really interesting how the conversations evolved. It's really turned into um, kind of really a lot of shaming and, and guilt tripping and almost class warfare. Um, because this decluttering and this minimalism is by choice. Um, it's not something that we're forced into because of poverty, say. It's, it's really kind of a, an elitist conversation. And the less that we usually are content with is niche and expensive, right? And so there's all these conversations. It's really interesting to see us go between these two poles of consumptive excess on the one hand. Like, what do we do with this sense of more that we experience as Americans, there's consumption and all the excess and all the advertising, and then there is this counter-movement of uh, decluttering and minimalism. And back and forth, we kind of go, and there's almost like a, a culture war happening around this, and people cycle between these two poles. Now, what I want to do here uh, today is talk a little bit about a spirituality of more. Um, just to be clear, I'm not anti-advertising. I know some of you are in advertising, you're in marketing. Uh, I don't want to downplay some of the helpful critiques that have been brought about by the decluttering movement. I think there's a lot that we're learning about simplicity, for instance, that the Bible would commend. I don't think that, and my personal belief is that advertising is not created something as much as I think it's exposed and often attempts to monetize and exploit, uh, but it's exposed two core anthropological truths about what it means to be human. Uh, One of those, the first one, is that we are desiring creatures built with this holy discontent in our souls. We are, at our core, desiring, longing, loving beings. That's what it means to be human. The second thing that we see, I think, that, that this is exposed is that we also struggle with a profound sense of emptiness because we often take those desires and we set them on the wrong objects. And I believe that our cultural, cultural obsession with accumulating more reveals a deeper spiritual hunger and a restlessness for God. We try to fill our soul's spiritual hunger and restlessness with material objects, more technology, more experiences, more relationships, more commodities, more status, only to find a law of diminishing returns, right? In this equation, more it's talking about that kind of this, as our world becomes more secular, um, more equals less. More equals less happiness, less joy, less contentment, less of what it means to actually flourish as a human being. And studies done over the last 50 years, sociologist after sociologist after researcher tells us that as prosperity and consumption and technology go up in Western societies, happiness and well-being actually go down. One of my favorite authors who kind of has put his finger on this as a man named Ronald Rollheiser, is a priest and a spiritual writer, and here's what he has to say about this restlessness and this desire for more and kind of the spiritual roots. Like even as much as we like to think that our secular age is not spiritual, it actually is a religion. It is a spiritual quest. It has dogma and creed and disciplines and virtues and uh, also things that you're not supposed to do. It has rules, right, that are not supposed to be broken, um, taboos. And so here's what Rollheiser says. There is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life 
of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of the soul. We are not easeful human beings who occasionally get restless, serene persons who once in a while are obsessed by desire. The reverse is true. We are driven persons, forever obsessed, congenitally diseased, living lives, as Thoreau once suggested, of quiet desperation, only occasionally experiencing peace. Desire is the straw that stirs the drink. Augustine, a church father, well before Rollheiser or the advertising movement of the 20th century, said this very simply, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find rest in thee. So I want to talk about a spirituality of more. And I believe this is what the Bible actually teaches, that we were designed to long for more. Like, don't you want more for your life than what you're currently experiencing? Even if you're a Christian, like, wouldn't you say, you want more of, of God? You want more than the status quo? You want more than what you're currently experiencing in your spirituality? And, and enter into this conversation, the Apostle Paul. That's exactly what he teaches when it comes to living life in the Spirit. So I want to read this passage, a short little passage from Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul has a lot to teach us in the book of Ephesians about life in the Spirit. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes this, starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now this passage is a really fascinating one, and it comes in a particular context within the book of Ephesians. If you remember last week, we talked about the book of Ephesians and our new identity in Christ. And in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul, telling us what it means to live life in the Spirit as the beloved children of God, says this is who you are in Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ and to experience the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is how it changes your identity. Then in chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul says, now I want you to begin to live out. He says, therefore, in view of all that I've just said, now live out your identity and calling as the beloved children of God in your relationships, in all of your relationships at home, in your church family, and out in the world. And right here, he comes to really, I think what a lot of scholars would agree is the climax of the book. And he says, if you're going to love God, if you're truly going to be able to love God and love other people, and if you're going to stand against demonic powers that resist you doing that, you must learn to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is the way that we live out our calling and our identity in the world. And so just a few comments about this passage, and I want to talk about what it actually means to be filled with the Spirit. Um, A couple things you'll notice here um, in these verses. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. That that verb, uh, to be filled, the the verb be there, is in the present tense. You could actually translate it. A better transition, I think, is go on being filled, right? Go keep on being 
filled. It's a present tense verb, something that's supposed to be continuously happening to us. Not something that happens just one time, but something that happens over and over and over again. And I want to make a distinction here between, before we kind of jump into what being filled with the Spirit is, I want to make a distinction between being filled with the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit. A lot of people confuse these terms, and so I want to make sure that we're clear what we're saying and what we're not saying. This is different than baptism in the Spirit. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, we looked at again last week, Jesus was baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. And John says there, I baptize you with water for repentance, speaking to the Israelites, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The baptism of the Spirit um, throughout the New Testament uh, refers to our conversion experience. We are baptized, we're immersed, we're deluged in the Spirit. We're literally drenched in the Spirit when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus for salvation. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us permanently. This is an instantaneous thing. This is universal, all Christians everywhere. And it is an unrepeatable event. It only happens one time. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so I want to make a distinction between being baptized in the Spirit, which happens once in all Christians who trust in Jesus, and then being filled with the Spirit. There's one baptism, but Paul actually would say there's many, many fillings. And so um, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins to unpack this desire to be filled with fullness, to be filled with more of the Holy Spirit um, in our everyday experience. Ephesians 1, 17, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Right after he says, this is who you are, you've been filled with the Spirit. Listen to what he says, I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So he just told them that they already have the Spirit, but now he's praying that God would give them more of the Spirit and that the Spirit would come and give them more wisdom and more insight into the knowledge of God. Ephesians chapter 3, likewise, Paul continues to pour these prayers on, and he says, I pray that God may strengthen you with power through the Spirit, that you may be filled, and here's the key phrase, be filled with all the fullness of God. I think what Paul is referring to here is being filled with the Spirit. He says, I I pray that you may be, you have the opportunity to be filled with all the fullness of God. What Paul's saying is that there is more of the Spirit to be experienced than what we receive at conversion. When we are baptized in the Spirit, that's the beginning of life in the Spirit. We don't necessarily experience all that there is to be experienced in that moment. Being filled with the Spirit, Paul says, he says, go on being filled with the Spirit. He says this should be a continuous pursuit, an ongoing reality. It's a repeatable thing, and it's a deepening of experiencing the presence presence of the Holy Spirit. Even though, for many of us, the Spirit indwells us, He lives inside of us, for some of us, life in the Spirit is like living with a total stranger, right? Like the Spirit lives in some other wing of the house or locked in the basement, and we've never actually spent a lot of intimate time communing and feasting and living life in the fullness of the Spirit. So, first thing to notice is this is a present tense. The second thing to notice about this passage is that it's in the plural. He's he's saying, you be filled with the Spirit. That you is a plural, uh, it's a plural uh, noun. Um, The expectation here is that we'd be a Spirit-filled community, not 
just spirit-filled individuals or elites or like this is not just for like weirdos. This is for the entire community. You should be a spirit-drenched community. This was normative, a normative expectation in the New Testament that all Christians would be filled with the Spirit and pursuing the fullness of life in the Spirit. I have a list here on this uh, slide where you can see throughout the book of Acts, I mean, time and time again, we see people filled with the Spirit. Acts 2, the disciples, when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, is poured out and they're filled with the Spirit. Acts 4, Peter's filled with the Spirit. Acts 6 and 7, Stephen filled with the Spirit. Paul is filled with the Spirit. The Gentiles are filled with the Spirit, non-Jews. Barnabas is a man full of the Spirit, and through his ministry with Paul, um, the entire group of disciples at the end of chapter 13 are filled with the Holy Spirit. My point is, is that this was an expectation. This was normative. This would not have been strange. This is not for just a small group of Christians. Uh, another thing I want you to see here about this, uh, this passage is that this is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. If you look at the structure of this passage, like if you spoke Greek and you could read this in Greek, what you would see here is an imperative or a command, and then it's followed by these participles that modify this imperative command. So teaching and singing and these other things that you see later on in verses 19 and 20, submitting, all go back and reference this one command. And what I want you to hear is the fact that this is a command, I think, implies when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, go on being filled with the Spirit, he's implying that it's actually possible to not be filled with the Spirit, that there are some who are running low, their tanks are on empty when it comes to their experience. So you can have the Holy Spirit in you and yet not be filled with the Spirit and experience in the fullness of all the Spirit has to offer. Last thing, and then I want to jump and define what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The last thing I want you to notice here is that it's a passive. He says, be filled with the Spirit. This is a passive verb, not an active verb. This is something that happens to you, not something that you can make happen in your own strength. And that's kind of a, a weird thing. Like, how do you obey a passive command? Like, if I told you right now, go get your cell phone, go get your iPhone, I want you to call your mother, okay? Your mother needs to talk to you. Um, okay, you could do that. But what if I told you, go and be called by your mother, <laughs> right? Like that would be weird. Like how do you obey a passive command? And so that's what I want to talk about here together is how do, we, how do we do something that is actually done to us? How do we be filled with the Spirit? Is that something that we control? Is that something that we can do? Or is it not something? Like how do we obey a passive command? That's what I want to talk about now is what does it actually mean to be filled with the Spirit, and then I want to look at how we actually pursue being filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Um, One of the challenges for us in understanding this uh, command is the word filled. In English, in the English language, when we tend to think of filling something, we, I think our minds immediately go to like an aquatic or a liquid image, right? Like imagine I had a bottle right now, and I said, fill up this bottle with water, right? So to fill a bottle, you have like a certain amount of space that needs to be filled. You fill it up with nice, clean, fresh water. You put the cap on and you set it aside and you say, okay, now that water, uh, that, that bottle is full, right? That's how we might think of filling. That's not exactly how, though that was a common usage in, uh, Greek and Hebrew thinking. In the Greek and Hebrew language and thought system, 
Um, they actually would think less of an aquatic imagery and more like a spatial imagery. Because again, remember that word ruach or pneuma from which we get uh, the Holy Spirit um, can be translated breath or can be translated wind or air. So a better analogy for us might be one that takes into account a spatial dynamic with airflow. Um, And I want you to think here um, like a musical instrument, right? Like a clarinet. Some of you may play the trombone. Maybe you played in high school band, a trumpet. Like a clarinet is just, I mean, I don't mean to be offensive if you're like a music person, but it's just a piece of metal. It's just a piece of wood until it's filled with breath, with power that comes from outside of itself. When that breath, though, is breathed into that instrument, it's pushed through that instrument, and it's played with skill, this life comes rushing in through it, and it creates beautiful music. It's part of a symphony. It can create beautiful orchestras, right? Like, that's, that's kind of the thing I want you to think about. It's like it's lifeless and meaningless unless there's air flowing through it. But once it's filled, it can do powerful and beautiful things. The word uh, filled in the Greek is actually the word plerao, and it's the word from which we get our word plethora. And it was a spatial term that described the filling or the abundance of things with particular objects. And it was frequently, here's another analogy, it was frequently used in Greek thought of a ship's sail blowing in the wind. So I want you to think of sailing. Maybe for some, music might work. For others, sailing could be a great analogy. Um, For a couple years, I had the opportunity to live in West Palm Beach in South Florida. And the church where I was serving was right downtown in West Palm Beach. It sat right across from Palm Beach Island. So if you don't know about Palm Beach Island, it's one of the richest islands in the world. Uh, Donald Trump has um, his place, Miralago there. Oprah has a place there. Many wealthy people have a place there. And so often I would go out of the front of our church and literally walk across the street and take a, take a jog down the Okeechobee Bridge And if you look out in any direction over the intercoastal waterway, it's just beautiful. The wind is blowing, and you see sailboats and yachts lining the intercoastal waterway. And so sailing is, I think, a great analogy here, because if you think about a sailboat, now I'm not a sailor, I get seasick, so I can't even go out on the water without throwing up. Uh, But like, if you're a sailor, if you've ever been out and tried to sail in any kind of a boat, um, you know that a sail needs to be continuously filled with wind to be able to move across a body of water. And there's skill in setting that up and you know, the direction, the position, and how you get into the wind and how you look at the wake. Like There's a lot that goes into sailing. And I think it's a great analogy for how we think about being filled. Like The sails have to be filled with the power of the wind in order for you to have a pleasurable experience. And it's this combination of both experience and practice, right? Like there's experiences uh, that, that are had there, and there's practices that lead to the experience. Experience leads to practices, and then practices uh, put us in a position to harness and to sustain the experience. And that's exactly what we see. When you're drenched with the Spirit, when you're filled with the Spirit, it is an experience. Like you know when you're being filled. Like if you've ever been sailing or you've ever experienced a powerful wind pushing you down uh, the waterline, you know what it's like to have that experience, to be drenched. Or if you've fallen into the water, you know what it's like to be drenched in the water. It's an experience. And we need that experience. We shouldn't downplay that experience. That experience leads to new practices, new habits, new ways of living that help to harness the power of that experience and carry it forward in our lives, right? Like you have to prepare the sails and the boat. Um, And if you're a good sailor, you don't take credit for the power of the wind. You know that you can't control that. That's something that happens, but you can prepare 
the boat, and it's this dynamic interplay between experience and practice. And I think it's the same thing with the Spirit. We need to be careful that we don't downplay either the experience, like we don't want to detach cold, rational faith, right? That's not what the New Testament invites us to see. We need the experience of the power of the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit in our lives. But then it leads us, just like in this passage, you see, being Spirit-filled is not just some private experience that we have that doesn't have any tangible outflow in the world. It leads to new practices, like you see teaching and communicating the goodness of God. You see singing, you see gratitude, you see submission or attentiveness to our relationships. Like this is the, These are the practices that flow out of being filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit, yes, is something we wait for, something we pray for, something we long for, but it's also practices. It's a way of life that we cultivate that puts us in a position so when the wind of God's Spirit blows, which we have no ability to control, we are in a position to benefit from that powerful experience. I love the way that one theologian, Andrew Wilson, says it. Sailing is the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power. That's kind of what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. It's the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power, the power of the Holy Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit is like sailing. It's like being uh, a musical instrument. It's about attending to and responding to a power outside of ourselves that flows through our lives. And Paul uses another illustration here um, in addition to help us understand being filled with the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul's using something that had been very common in that time, drunkenness, right? Like in this culture, in the Roman Empire, uh, they had gods of partying, right? And so one of those particular gods was named Bacchus, the son of Zeus, and he was a powerful and versatile god in that time. And so he was associated with ecstasy and intoxication, essentially partying. And so people would gather together in that time. This, he's kind of talking about their life before Christ. Um, and they would celebrate with wine, and they would go to excess and have these these big parties and feasts and use all kinds of uh, you know, terrible language. And they, they called these celebrations bacchanalia. And that's, that's kind of what he's talking about. He says, don't be like that, but there's an analogy here. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, two, there's two references in the New Testament to, uh, that compare drunkenness and the Spirit, both here and if you remember when the Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, they thought that they were drunk. And I think the analogy that Paul is trying to draw our attention to is that being filled with the Spirit is, in a sense, like being under the influence of alcohol. It's to be under the influence. It's to be controlled or possessed by a power outside of yourself. Now, we don't want to be possessed in the same way that we want to be possessed if we lose control of our mental critical faculties. I mean, obviously, drunkenness is a poison. It's not something to be pursued. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. He's just saying that, like, to be controlled by the Spirit is to surrender. It's to be controlled by a power outside of yourself. And I think that's why some of us are even afraid of the Holy Spirit, if we're honest, because we can't control the Spirit, and we don't like to be out of control. Um, so what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Let me just give you a couple simple definitions, and then we'll close talking about how we actually pursue being filled with the Spirit. Simon Ponsonby, uh, New Testament theologian, says this, when the Bible speaks of being filled with the Spirit, it is saying that one is consumed, taken over, impregnated, saturated, complete, and replete with God's presence in power. Sam Storms, a pastor, says it this way, to be filled with the Spirit is to come under progressively more intense and intimate influence of the Spirit. 
Does that scare you? Does that make you nervous? Like, how do you respond when you hear this command to be filled with the Spirit? That's how we obey a passive command, as we prepare ourselves to be possessed by, controlled by the Spirit. We, we practice and we can create an environment where we can put ourselves in the way of the Holy Spirit, but then we pray and we wait and we ask the Holy Spirit to possess us, to control us, to take us and to do what we can't do in our own strength, right? Like, so how does that make you feel? Does that sound exciting? Like, there's different responses to the idea of being filled with the Spirit. For some of us, we're like super excited about that, and for some of us, maybe not so much. Um, I want to use a couple of different um, animal analogies here, because we live in Broderpool, and we all like, you know, animals. And so maybe these are some different ways that you think about responding as you hear this idea of being filled with the Spirit. Um, Some of you will respond like a drenched cat, right? A drenched cat does not like to get wet, right? Like they, they hate getting wet. They hate the idea of being drenched with water. And that's how some of us feel about the Holy Spirit. We don't like to lose control. We're like a wet cat. We're just fighting any kind of spirit-led, spirit-filling. This idea of being filled to the fullness or more really scares us. And we uh, respond by resisting and clawing and fighting against the work of the Spirit. For others of us, maybe we're like this uh, picture of the monkeys, right? Like we're kind of at the edge of the water and we're looking in and the water's kind of like a necessary evil and we're going to walk through it, but it's like, how do I just get through here as quickly as possible so that I can be on my way? We do the bare minimum we have to do, the maintenance of the Spirit, so to speak, and we're not really excited about the work of the Spirit. Um, the, the picture, I, the image that I think would be really helpful for us to think about is the one of, of the hippo, right? Like, I've been watching Bear Grylls uh, videos with my kids in quarantine almost every night, and uh, he goes to this one particular area where there's lots of hippos, and you learn that actually hippos are one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. They kill more people, uh, like in Africa, than any other animal. But these animals that are interesting because they're land animals, but they live most of their life, once they wake up in the morning and they move out into the water, they live most of their life in the water. They do life in the water. They enjoy being in the water, eating and, and drinking and doing life kind of drenched in and underneath the water. And then they go back out at night and they sleep. But most of their life is lived in the water. And I think for us as Christians, that should be the posture that we have in responding to the Spirit is we want to live our lives in the Spirit. We want to live our lives drenched to be filled with the Spirit, to be saturated with the Spirit, to be pursuing more, to be asking God for more of the Spirit's presence and power in our lives. And so I want to ask that question of you. Do you want more of God? Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? And if not, why? What are you afraid of? What are you scared of? Maybe for some of us, we just haven't experienced that before. We don't know what it looks like to actually live in the Spirit and have the Spirit empowering our relationships in our life, in our homes, and in the church, and in the world. Simon Ponzabi says this for the win. This desire for more of God is a sign of spiritual health. It's not something we should be skeptical of, he says. The mature want more. We recognize that a marriage where one partner no longer desires intimacy is in trouble, that a baby who no longer wants to eat is sick, that a bird that no longer wants to fly is crippled, and so we must recognize also that a Christian who no longer wants to know, grow, hear, and see, and touch, and serve, and love, and be changed by God is also in trouble sick, and crippled. We should, like Paul, want more 
of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. We cannot function. We cannot be effective. We cannot be fruitful in our lives as Christians unless we're filled by the Spirit. So the question that I want to close with is, how do we do that? What does it actually look like for us to be filled with the fullness of the Spirit? How do we pursue this more in the ways that the Bible invites us to? Three things I want to encourage you to think about in terms of applying this to your life this week. To, to, to pursue the more of the Spirit, first we must empty ourselves of false spirits. We must empty ourselves of anything that's not holy, right? Ephesians 4, Paul says right before this, don't grieve the Spirit. And he lists all kinds of attitudes and thought patterns and behaviors that are not consistent with a life lived with the Holy Spirit inside of us, right? Like we must be holy. We must pursue holiness. And I know that gets a bad rap. Holiness is like buttoned up self-righteousness and kind of looking down our noses at other people. But the word holy just means to be whole. It's to be set apart by God for God in wholeness, right? And so um, this is the Bible's kind of idea of repentance, right? Repentance always precedes work of the Spirit in the Bible. Acts 2, 38, you see Peter says, repent and believe in Jesus and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We need to return or to repent of anything that's not aligned with the heart of God and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. This is like mending our sails so that the Spirit can blow and energize us and move us in a free and full way. So the first thing is to empty ourselves, to pay attention to those things that are not in line with God's heart, and to empty ourselves so that we can open ourselves to be filled with the Spirit. Second thing we need to do is just ask. Right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm convicted in the last couple of weeks how little time I spend just asking, God, would you fill me with your Spirit? God, would you come in power and fill me to the fullness of Christ? Right? Like in Luke chapter 11, Jesus has this, this to say to his disciples. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit, give good gifts, the gift of the Spirit, to those who ask him. We have not because we ask not. Like, what would it look like for you just each day this week, each day for the next several weeks, just to wake up in the morning with a sense of eager anticipation? God wants to give me the gift of the Spirit. God, would you give me more today? Would you give me your Holy Spirit? Allow me to be filled with the Spirit. The third thing that Uh, I would encourage you to do, is to enter into the dance of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. This is the idea of kind of keeping up with, keeping up with the pace, dancing with the Spirit, being attentively responsive to the Spirit, right? This is just about paying attention and being attuned to the little nudges and the promptings of the Spirit, And the Spirit is always speaking to us. He's trying to fill us. He's trying to get our attention. Hey, talk to this person. Pray for this person. Like this morning, uh, I just, I got this nudge. I was thinking about a friend of mine that I hadn't talked to in a while, and I got this nudge, and I actually didn't, I didn't do anything about it. I got this prompting to just reach out to this person and to pray for them, and I didn't do it. And not even 30 minutes later, this friend who I haven't talked to in a long time reached out and said, hey, just thinking about you. Like how many of those do we have throughout the day where the Spirit is nudging us and leading us and prompting us? to take risks and just to put ourselves out there, right? And to practice the things that are listed in this passage and throughout the New Testament, right? To, to, to communicate God's goodness, 
to be, pay attention to our relationships with one another, to submit to one another, to, to sing, right? Those are the places where we find the Spirit at work. And I want to encourage you to keep in step, to do the dance of the Spirit, to empty ourselves of things that are not holy and of the Holy Spirit, to ask God to give us the Holy Spirit, and then to enter into the dance of the Spirit, to pay attention to what the Spirit is doing throughout our days, and to seek more and more of His presence and His power, filling us, saturating us, and drenching us. This is the life that God wants for us. He wants us to find more, not more in our stuff, not more in our relationships, not more in our experiences, but he wants to take that restlessness, that hunger, and to fix it on him. He wants us to ask and to pursue and to lean in and, and, and have more of him. This is life in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Do you want more? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this invitation as your children to be filled with the Spirit, to live a life pursuing more, not more for the sake of more, but more because you are an inexhaustible treasure and fountain of riches that we can quench our thirst and that we can satiate our hunger on. God, we can come to you and we can drink and drink and drink and never be full. And so, God, I pray that we would pursue more intimacy, more of your presence and power, that we would seek to keep step with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, empowering us in our relationships at home, in this church community, and out in the world, especially now in a time of pandemic. We need to be filled with your Spirit. We need the fullness of Um, to be filled with the fullness of God. And so, God, I pray that you would grant that. Would you come, Holy Spirit, this week and fill us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.